Welcome everyone, my name is Patricia Rozvora and I'm the host of Kitchen Conversations, a platform to speak about contemporary art from so-called Eastern Europe. In each episode, you're going to be introduced to one artist, sometimes also a collective, whose visual or activist practice sheds light onto the complex former socialist region, with all its histories, cultures, languages, foods, but also traumas and their inevitable contemporary consequences. The podcast is a fully independent platform existing since May 2020. If you enjoy the monthly conversations, you can support me via Patreon or share the episodes with your friends or via social channels. Welcome back, dear listeners. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with Helene Geritsen, a manager and artistic director of Go East, Festival of Central and Eastern European Film that takes place every year in Wiesbaden, that is in the southwestern Germany. So on the podcast, I usually speak to artists, but from time to time, I also invite curators and uh, institution representatives that somehow also deal with the context of Eastern European, broadly speaking, culture, history and arts. And today is one of such conversations. Uh, we are speaking prior to the 23rd edition of the festival that this year will take place at the end of April, so from the 24th of April till the 2nd of May and uh, after a conversation I'm sure many of you will be uh, intrigued and want to visit the festival, so I highly recommend. The Go East Film Festival uh, dates back basically to the 80s and is co-organized by the German Film Institute in addition to a great deal of screenings, panel discussions, masterclasses and film retrospectives. Each year the festival also organizes a symposium that is happening parallel to the festival. And this year the title of the symposium is Decolonizing the Post-Soviet Screen, which is of course a very current and urgent topic uh, to speak about. So till March uh, 1st uh, the festival had an open call for papers on the topic and we'll be putting together a publication with the selected texts. So without further ado, I invite you uh, to take a listen to my insight conversation with Helene Geritsen and the wonderful Go East Film Festival. Let's begin. Welcome Helene to Kitchen Conversations. Thank you. I'm happy to have you here in Berlin, in the heart of Kreuzberg, so people will be able to see, not to see, but to hear a bit the, the sounds of the city. So when there's like an ambulance coming, which happens often in the street, mm -hmm. we have to stop for a second, otherwise... Uh, we just continue through the city noises. Uh, you are not living in Berlin, but you're here for the Berlinale. Yes, yeah, I used to live in Berlin, um, but I left uh, when I took over um, the Go East Film Festival. So I first moved to Frankfurt and then to Wiesbaden. Uh, I've been doing Go East since two th uh, 2017, so, but it's always nice to be back in, in Berlin. And today's your last day uh, of Berlinale. You said 
You watched a lot, you encountered a lot of people. It's been intense and I'm very tired, so please forgive me if I talk nonsense during <laughs> this kitchen conversation. <laughs> it's kitchen conversation, so everything can happen. <laughs> But as you said, uh, we are here uh, to speak about the festival you're leading. You are the festival's manager and the artistic director of the Go East Film Festival. And for the very beginning, of course, I would like you to introduce shortly yourself, how you would like to be introduced and the festival you're leading. Oh, how do I want to be introduced? Okay, well, I was born and raised in the Netherlands. Um, I studied in Amsterdam and St. Petersburg, um, Slavic languages and literature, Eastern European history and economics. And then uh, through an internship in St. Petersburg at the Land Film Studios, I came to, uh, to love film. Uh, so I went into production, but I also always worked for, for festivals. And I really like this balance. You know, when you keep on producing films, then sometimes you question yourself, who is going to watch these films? There's already so much out there, so much going on. So actually organizing a platform where films can be seen is a really nice combination with producing yourself. And uh, yeah, I feel very privileged and grateful that I can contribute to uh, to a festival like Go East because I think from the very beginning the concept is fantastic and you can just fill it with wonderful content, invite very interesting people and show beautiful films. So, yeah. <laughs> and it is uh, a festival that concentrates on uh, Central and Eastern European films. Uh, that's the name of the festival, the official one, uh, Go East Festival of Central and Eastern European Film. Uh, but of course, geographically, this region is, is very complex. Um, it would be correct to say that we concentrate on films from the post-socialist region, but this doesn't sound very sexy. So, um, And people like it sexy, indeed. <laughs> people like it sexy. Um, there's, I don't know, I, I inherited the name. Uh, I like that it's also a little bit provocative. Um, I mean, calling your German film festival Go East, that kind of leads to associations... Um, It's a game of words with um, with Go West. Uh, but we also screen films from the Caucasus uh, and from uh, Central Asian countries. So that's definitely not Eastern Europe. Uh, but to us, historically, this whole region is um, is connected and it makes sense to to compare the countries, but also to show the enormous diversity, like how countries uh, developed. The first thing I read about the festival Uh, what surprised me, it's location. So I guess I assumed that everything that is more looking at the eastern side uh, of Europe would be located in Berlin. So thinking about the center and the periphery. And here there is an amazing festival, actually, we could say in the periphery of culture Germany. So it is not Berlin. Uh, what's the connection between uh, Wiesbaden and Eastern Europe? And Wiesbaden is a city uh, close to Frankfurt uh, that is in the southwest uh, of Germany. Yeah, it's uh, one of those old traditional spa towns. Like in the 19th century, a lot of the aristocracy, also from Poland, but uh, also from um, the Russian Empire, came there um, and enjoyed the spa in the casino. Allegedly, Dostoevsky once lost his entire fortune in Wiesbaden. Although there's still this rivalry going on 
between Baden-Baden and Wiesbaden. They both have Dostoevsky statues and claim that of this did. is where the player was written, you know, in order to pay off his debts. Um, of course, now Dostoevsky becomes kind of a controversial figure. And, um, uh, you, well, you can really hear his thoughts about the empire uh, already from, from his novels, but that's another topic. The reason we are in Wiesbaden is because the German Film Institute, the DFF, um, was founded in Wiesbaden. Um, when the wall was still standing, Germany really had like uh, two sets of institutions, like you had uh, institutions in, in the East and in the West, and then after reunification, some of those institutions um, have been merged, but not all of them. So this is why you have this really decentral uh, organizational structure of the German film industry. Our mothership, the DFF, moved to Frankfurt. Um, there we also run the film museum, but there's still uh, one of the main German archives is in Wiesbaden. Um, like you have the Murnau Foundation, which has like all the silent films by Murnau, but also by other directors, of course. The Film Institute used to organize Eastern European Film Weeks um, already in the 80s, actually. So they brought films oh, by... Oh, wow, long ago, no? Yeah. Mm. They brought films by Andrzej Wajda, but also other directors to Western audiences. And uh, they were actually very criticized for it. You know, like, why, why are you bringing this communist shit to us? <laughs> but <laughs> then uh, in 2001, when the festival was founded, this was, of course, before the, uh, the expansion of the European Union, um, and it was a political decision to have a festival really in the West, um, trying to make audiences familiar with cultures from our Eastern neighbors, basically. So that was the, the first idea, that it's kind of like a soft diplomacy tool to um, make people more aware and more interested in, uh, in our direct Eastern neighbors. And I still think this is very important. I sometimes meet people in Frankfurt that have never been to Leipzig, <laughs> you know, so not even Eastern Germany is really on their radar. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting place. It's still a historical spa town uh, and it's wonderful to, to bring. We have usually like 450 professional visitors every year, among them also uh, up-and-coming talents in our East-West Talent Lab uh, and bringing... Um, a bunch of beautiful Eastern European party people and filmmakers to this uh, kind of sleepy town is very, very nice. Super nice. Yeah, I heard actually that the city is also very sweet and like it's kind of relaxing to go there from some filmmakers. They, they recommend it. definitely go to see the, the films, the festival, but also the town or city. The spa is great. Yeah, it's, it actually it has 300,000 inhabitants, so it's not super small. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, it has quite a, a lovely historical town center. It has a fantastic uh, traditional spa, Kaiser Friedrich Therme, and uh, the vineyards are very close. So it's a nice part of Germany to, to live. I like it there. Nice. And you are, as we said at the beginning, the festival's manager and artistic director. I'm curious, uh, what does your year look like? So the festival takes one week? something like this yes so how do you prepare the festival and what's what's your kind of day-to-day -day reality as a festivals manager well it changes a bit like over the summer me and my colleagues from the program department we tend to travel to other festivals in order to meet people in order to watch films or also um, 
there are often presentations of works in progress that are being made and then we can already see okay maybe this film will, will be ready in time and then we can screen it next year uh, so the the scouting for films it actually happens year round then we need to of course finance the festival like we we usually well we mostly depend on uh, on public funding so we need to write all of the funding applications we do that in summer and fall that takes time huh? it takes a lot of time unfortunately it's not my favorite part of no, the <laughs> I can imagine. of the process but you know at the same time it's taxpayers money it's public funding so we need to use it carefully um, and also I like to pay our people properly like everyone who um, participates in the in the program I, I don't really believe in this volunteering and self-exploitation it's nice for a bit you can create wonderful grassroots initiatives through that but for a festival that is this established you need to have like proper funding so that takes a lot of time uh, and then starting in January every year our team expands and we're about 20 people in much too small offices <laughs> and then we really start concretely preparing like the guest management starts inviting people we start to confirm the films we make like the schedule um, we visit Berlinale <laughs> then the festival week of course is very intense Mm. And uh, so you said you scout for films, but people can also apply with films, yeah. correct? Yeah, we have a submission period where people can send their, their films, yes. And can you uh, tell a little bit uh, of the selection process, like what films are important for you to show also with the changing um, society and how we understand history especially nowadays looking at what's happening uh, in ukraine the urgencies of what films should be shown changed over the years yeah well i think um eastern european cinema is kind of underrepresented in the german cinema landscape like most theater releases uh, are hollywood films obviously and then there's uh, french uh, art house films and wellness comedies as I like to call them um, ger some German films but Eastern European films sometimes really struggle to get to German audiences so in that sense you could say it's quite marginalized already and this is one of our main missions to make them visible to give them a platform and now more than ever like this is the case with, with Ukraine obviously uh, there's a lot of attention for it all of a sudden Honestly, I found it very frustrating to see how little knowledge there was in, um, in, in German society about Ukraine, but also about our other Eastern neighbors like Poland, um, Hungary. I think these countries are deeply misunderstood. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is important for us to also give a good representative overview of the region. We have several sections. Um, I think most important for the filmmakers themselves is our competition because we also give prize money and you get good visibility there. Um, here we work with the selection committee, so it's not like I am the festival director, I'm going to make all the decisions myself, no. Um, we have, for instance, Barbara Worm who also works for the Berlinale as a selector. Um, we have people who have been with the festival since the very beginning. And uh, this is very valuable. And also the last festival manager, Gabi Babic, um, who has more of a 
I would say, feminist perspective on film, and she's really specialized on the Balkans region. This is great to have such a diversity of people on your selection committee. And um, we make a pre-selection of films that, that we send to the selection committee. I'm also a member, of course. Um, it's usually around 60 to 70 films per year that get pre-selected. We watch all of those, we discuss all of those, and then we make a short list. We have 16 spots in competition. Uh, we screen both documentaries, but also fiction. So we, for us, that's a film is a film, is a work of art, it's all equal. Um, and then we usually end up with a list with like 20 to 25 titles. And then we start looking, okay, uh, are the genres equally distributed? Are the countries equally represented? Um, also, a gender balance is, of, of course, important. It's not that difficult to get a gender balance in Central and Eastern Europe because there are a lot of really talented uh, female directors. And especially if you throw uh, documentaries into the mix, then you will get your um, women quote, if I may call it that. Um, but these are, of course, important criteria that we have like a good equal distribution. And I'm also curious, uh, maybe that was supposed to be a question for the beginning, but uh, it's also fine if it's now. Uh, is there some uh, personal interest in this area, this culture of yeah, so-called Eastern Europe of yours? Because before we started the recording, uh, you told me you are originally from Eindhoven, from the Netherlands. Uh, that's quite close to my heart. I, I told you I lived there and studied for a long time. Yeah, I'm curious, apart from your studies, of course, what draws you to, to this part of the world and to the people and to the films? Yeah, I often ask myself that same question. <laughs> but as you know, the Netherlands is quite small and it has a very specific mindset. Like Dutch people are quite pragmatic and um, Calvinist in a way. <laughs> Um, uh, to me, it always felt very small, <laughs> especially like in the suburbs, like all of these houses that look the same. And Eindhoven, when I grew up, uh, all of my Eastern European friends really like it. Um, I guess because it looks like a five-year plan that went well. <laughs> so, um, but my interest <laughs> came really through, through culture, through, through art, through literature also, and through cinema. Um, but of course, when I started studying, I specialized on Russian language, like many people do when they start uh, studying Slavic languages. And my second language was, uh, then it was still called Serbo-Croatian. Now it's Serbian and Croatian and Bosnian. Uh, yeah. And then the first time I went to Russia, uh, to St. Petersburg to study, it was tough adapting to that reality because it was still the 90s. So... Um, there were virtually no restaurants. Uh, there were a few bars, but mo most of the parties that we had were in in private kitchens or in, in large squats um, or in our student dorm. We lived on the only floor that had a sofa. <laughs> <laughs> so all the wild parties were on our floor. Um, but there I really I connected to the people. I thought it was really nice. You could come to any gathering and if you were introduced by friends, then no one would ask you, what do you do for a living? <laughs> um, sometimes they didn't even ask you, where are you from? 
Um, and it was a very cordial way, very hospitable way of, of meeting people at home and uh, but also having conversations, like philosophical conversations on a certain level. Uh, and I really liked that, like in the St. Petersburg artist, student milieu, I really felt um, very well at the time. A lot has happened since then. <laughs> mm. And some of my Russian friends from back then, uh, just actually very shocking, and I'm sure that a lot of people share this experience. Like in 2014 with Crimea, it was really very surprising to see how many people all of a sudden supported this absurd idea that Crimea should be a part of Russia. And um, I also have Russian friends who um, actually opened bottles of champagne at seven o'clock in the morning when the that ugly bridge was bombed. <laughs> well, it wasn't bombed. It was just, I think it was a, a truck that was set on fire on the bridge. Yeah. yeah. But this was like the first time when a, a really a division started happening uh, and I think a lot of us lost friends back then and now during the war even more like uh, some of the Russian filmmakers that have received state money over the last years and that are now complaining that the West doesn't want to take their their films I'm like okay just be patient this is maybe not the time to, you know, for you to express your self-pity, because your Ukrainian colleagues cannot make films. There, but part of them is at the front. Um, so yeah, there's this power, this balance between Russian and Ukrainian filmmakers, um, which of course puts us as a festival in a really difficult position. But your question started out with something completely different. But that's actually, it's a nice link to the next part uh, of what I wanted to ask you. Uh, yeah, indeed, uh, you are specialized uh, in so-called Eastern European cinema. And of course, uh, with uh, last year's beginning of the full-scale invasion, I can imagine all eyes here in Germany in the culture field was on you, especially that your festival... Uh, took part in April, so less than two months into the the full-scale war. Uh, yeah, what was... I mean, now it's one year since then. Uh, we are getting, yeah, tomorrow uh, as we record the episode. Uh, one year of this uh, war and, yeah, you still decided to go on with the festival uh, back then, a year ago. What were the the process is going on in your heads as the organizers and <laughs> well it was honestly horrible just just really horrendous and of course yeah the first thought was okay running a festival under these circumstances is completely futile and also the role of culture you really start questioning it yeah i think all culture makers were thinking like yeah. Shall we just and then stop and go to war? All, or these, what's going all on? these desperate initiatives, like we support Ukraine, because there's nothing that we can do. Like if I would go into the army, I would be useless, you know. <laughs> or I don't know, maybe I could take some training. But um, um, no, we decided to put on the festival because we have a responsibility for our team for uh, everyone who's connected to the festival and of course also to the filmmakers who at that point had already been confirmed like our program was was finished was mm. done and um, looking back like when I looked at our competition lineup at the time 
it is almost like the war was announcing itself already through the competition program, like with a mix of, we had really an over-representation both of Ukrainian and Russian film in our competition. Like it was, there was a really a huge amount of good stuff going on. Um, like Klondike was in our program, for instance, by Marina Elkorbach, and uh, but also some Russian films. And we decided quasi immediately to get rid of the films that were supported by state funding. Um, mainly also, well, the first decision was on February 24, actually, that we're not going to cooperate with state archives. Uh, and state-run organizations. And this is a big issue for us because we have a lot of historical programs. And as you might know, the Gosfilmofond near Moscow holds most of the film prints um, from Soviet film heritage. So also, for instance, we had a retrospective for a Georgian filmmaker, Lana Gogobiritsa. And some of the negatives, some of the prints were in Moscow. And so we had to find other ways to screen those films, which wasn't that easy, actually. Um, so this had consequences. We then had holes in the program and we decided not to uh, substitute those because it's a wartime situation. We, we actually thought a program with holes in it is quite, you know, representative for the time. How did the filmmakers react? Those who you said, like, we, we want screen your films? Very differently. Uh, like some of them immediately left the country and were um, could be very outspoken uh, against the war and they also understood that this is not right now not the time to to celebrate Russian cinema uh, but those were mostly like underground people who made the films out of their own pockets like they were really they were very gracious they immediately expressed their solidarity Uh, the more established filmmakers were actually, there's this nice term in German called beleidigte Leberwurst, which <laughs> means an ins insulted liver sausage. <laughs> They were really sulking, some of them, and I think some of them also will now boycott us forever. Um, I'm sorry they feel that way. Uh, I, I know that they probably also feel very, very helpless uh, and desperate. But um, screening a film, it, it does have a symbolic value, and especially like the, the logo of the Ministry of Culture with the, the big two-headed eagle. You don't want to show that having on the that screen. On, yeah. Having that on the big That's screen painful. right now. Yeah. You uh, held also a wonderful panel discussion uh, as part of your uh, last year's edition. Um, in the response or as an elaboration of the boycott of uh, Russian cinema that was uh, addressed by the Ukrainian Film Academy. Uh, and you had wonderful guests, uh, Ukrainian uh, filmmakers and people working with film, uh, yeah, expressing their opinion and take on that. Um, yeah, can you tell a little bit how the panel went for you? I just saw it through my screen. Uh, I will share the link also to it because despite the fact that it's a year ago and perhaps some perspective has changed, I, I think it's very good to to still uh, yeah watch it and understand uh, how urgent it was at the beginning and how we can see it now. So yeah, if you can tell a little bit about the panel. Yeah, it was... Um 
The call for boycott came very fast, right? It was, uh, I think, February 26th. Two days after, yeah. Two days beginning. after the start of the full-scale invasion. And um, I think in the Ukrainian filmmaking community, there was this feeling that everyone now has to be on the same page. And this is our message. This is what we can do, complete cultural boycott of, of Russia. Um, I'm absolutely against cultural boy boycotts. I think it's not... Um, I think it needs nuance. Uh, but of course, two days after the start of such a horrible invasion when rockets are flying over Kiev, um, I can imagine that there's this urgent need to, to act immediately. Um, and then this panel was really there for people to, to express themselves, to uh, explain where, where the idea and the concept comes from, but also to see what is going to happen in the future. Uh, and it was also actually more about making Ukrainian culture visible. Um, it, I thought it was very interesting, like for instance, at some point we started talking about language and there were also people in the audience from Moldova who shared this experience that in school um, it was, um, yeah, there was this really arrogant attitude towards the Romanian language in the case of Moldova. Um, but also towards Ukrainian, you know, Russian was the literature language, the elite language, the cultural language, and your own national language is only for everyday use, and it's seen as something like, uh, I think even Losnitsa expressed such a thing, like Ukraine never had its own nobility, so its, its culture is on the peasant level, you know, and I find this incredibly arrogant and denigrating, uh, and this is not the way I, I want to see culture. For me, high culture and everyday culture um, are both part of the same package, and especially in the cinema world, I would say it's, it's an art form that's very accessible to, to everyone. Um, yeah, the opinions expressed on the panel, I thought they were very, very interesting. And we decided on purpose that we would only invite Ukrainian participants. And already there you could see that people came from different places. Some were more diplomatic, others were more militant. Totally. It was really uh, great to see also how different people uh, showed the same uh, message yeah. in very different ways. Yeah, and they were still figuring it out. I mean, it is also extremely complicated. Like you have people coming from Eastern Ukraine who grew up with Russian, they spoke Russian at home, and to tell them now you have to switch to Ukrainian from one day to another in a war situation, which is already very stressful and where you sometimes have to communicate very fast. Of course, you do it in your mother tongue. And so I always say uh, Russian language doesn't belong to Russia. That's what happens when you colonize <laughs> your neighbors. Uh, they will take over your language and they will use it in their own way and they will make their own version of the language. And so, yeah, for me the panel was very interesting, but it was only the first step for a further process. And one topic that we also addressed there is that the way that we look at Soviet cinema, but also at, at Russian cinema. And uh, looking back, of course, certain works will be interpreted differently. Um, like in Germany, we also we have this Nazi film heritage, and there's a very special way to, to treat it. This is something that our institute, for instance, is also specialized in. 
Um, you can only show certain Nazi films that really have these these hate speech messages um, that are very deeply anti-Semitic. Um, you can only show them with an educational context, right? You cannot just show it in the cinema and say, what a fantastic film. We're going to make a lot of money with this. But, um, you know, Stalinist com comedies <laughs> or uh, propaganda films, you can just screen them. It's, there's no problem. Um, well, till now, right? Maybe now till, there's till finally now. like yes. a... Yes, a moment uh, for change, and so you had, uh, let's say, now um, difficult year as well. But to to maybe rethink certain ways or exactly how to present those archival films. So we are ahead of your uh, next edition, uh, which will be uh, between the twenty fourth of April and second of May. Uh, the podcast will appear a month before, so hopefully okay, people uh, who who will listen uh, and are around Germany will be able to join. Uh, yeah, how how did this year uh, and the process of making this edition um, perhaps change or cl clarify some ways of how to deal with those uh, difficult uh, historical films as well as uh, works of Russian or Russian-speaking filmmakers, and how are you approaching it this year? So the, the first thing that was the most important to us, uh, and also the most urgent, is now that we have the attention, <laughs> uh, is to show the diversity of this region and the richness of its culture. Uh, so we felt more motivated than ever to do programs that focus on Estonian film, on Hungarian film, on Slovenian film, you know, countries that are not that big on the map. Um, there are, of course, um, among film uh, fans and cinephiles, but uh, not with the general public. So that was the first thing. And then, yes, of course, this, the, the dilemma continues with Russian filmmakers. Um, well, we decided to kind of stick with what we did last year, like independent film uh, without state funding, not funded by oligarchs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We still consider it um, in the selection committee, but honestly, this is also an emotional part. Of course, um, every time there is an attack, you're like, I'm, I don't, I'm not in the mood to screen a Russian film that doesn't deal with politics. You know, if there's now... A, a yeah, indeed. How to make non-political art in these days. Yeah, and in a way you could say this is not fair towards individual artists, but this is the society we live in. And f for us as a platform, um, I think this is important. Um, last year we still had Russian films in the competition. Um, and most Ukrainian participants were also fine with that because one was from uh, from the Sakha Republic, so it was in the Yakutian language, uh, and it was actually the first historical film dealing with the colonization of Siberia that was made inside of Russia. And it's a beautiful film and very important. And this year we will also have a short film program uh, with films by, I don't like the word indigenous, but let's just use it for a lack of better words, indigenous filmmakers from uh, the post-Soviet region. A few Russian films, but also from uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, from Uzbekistan. Um, and I think this is, this is an interesting thing to focus on right now, because a lot of the anti-war resistance indeed comes from these groups. 
um, they have been disproportionately affected by the mobilization. And this affects also the future generations of these peoples, like their, their languages are already disappearing. But now you have sometimes towns and villages where half of the men are being mobilized. And of course, this will change the demographics of such a place forever. Um, so I thought it was important that we have that represented during Go East. It's very interesting that uh, the marginalized communities and also the feminist movement in Russia, that's where active resistance comes from, like also acts of sabotage. And um, so, of course, all very small scale. But I've seen very, very few people from the cultural elite really actually doing something. So, yeah. And I think especially what's um, worrying, or to me were some, that people like Russian people who actually don't live in Russia don't scream out, you know, like people in, there's so many Russians in Berlin. Also, it's for me very hard to judge, you know, like a Dutch person living in Germany and then going, you Russians so, should go out and protest and, and go to jail. Totally. I think judging in general is, is difficult and uh, it's easy, but uh, it's more complicated than that, definitely. Um, yeah, just like knowing from my own kind of perspective and how I see it, there is way, way more work being done from the Ukrainian side than from the other side yeah uh, yeah i'm super uh, happy to to speak about go east uh, on kitchen conversations and i really hope uh, people will discover the the festival well, or if they already know it find out more about it festival takes uh, around a week do you recommend people to come for the whole week or is there like three days is also nice to come or for the weekend was the best way to to explore well, if you have the time, then yes, come for the entire week because we have different sections. We will have Yasmila Zbanic as our retrospective guest from Bosnia and Herzegovina. So she will be there uh, for an extensive Q&A and we will screen not only her latest films, but also her, her documentaries and short films. Um, we will have uh, a masterclass by Elvira Nevera and uh, Piotr Osowowski. Amazing, yeah, yeah from the Schamlet Syndrome. Yes, yes. Uh, so that's great. Um, I've been following their, their work for a long time and um, I'm very curious to see what they have to say because they're a couple and they're also they're very much involved in aid for Ukraine. They've been going back and forth and being so intertwined with um, the political situation, actively helping making a film and doing all of that together and also raising kids in the process like it's uh, to me it's mind-boggling <laughs> so i'm very curious about what they i have to say we will have a fantastic historical animation program with um, psychedelic stuff from the 70s and 80s from estonia and hungary which are both countries very famous for for their animation tradition and connected to that, we will have a psychedelic Estonian funk party. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Because, thank God, the corona times are over and we can also be together and celebrate on the dance floor again, which <laughs> I think is also, it's important, even in maybe especially in miserable times like these. Um, yeah, and the competition lineup uh, looks very promising, I think. so. Very exciting. Yeah. I will be there. 
Great. And now the very, very last question. It might be a bit surprising and off the topic. Uh, but the very last question on my podcast is always about food. Oh, Since great. <laughs> uh, it's kitchen conversations today, we are like more office kitchen. Uh, yeah, what's your favorite uh, food from home? And by this question, of course, uh, the, the, the topic of home opens up. What is home for, for us, for you? Yeah, some food which you enjoy eating that gives you homey feelings. Well, uh, there's first of all, there's a lot of my grandmother's recipes, which I still make until this day when I feel a little bit under the weather. I make uh, the, by my grandma's recipe. It's just a simple vegetable soup, but you make it from scratch, like with, with bones and meat in it. The kind of real broth. Yeah, real broth. Um, that's my association with, with home, I guess. My parents weren't very, um, they're not very passionate cooks. So when I think of food and home, it's actually my sister and me make a lot of fun of it. My, my father at some point, he wanted to, um, to explore, my, what's it called, macrobiotics, which is for kids especially uh, quite a traumatizing diet, I would say. <laughs> um, I haven't heard of it. Yeah. So... Um, I will look into it. You don't have to. I, I like I like going home. I love my parents, but food is not something <laughs> that comes to mind when I think of my childhood home. But uh, yeah, my my grandmother's soup is great. Is there something like uh, in Wiesbaden that you recommend uh, from like local cuisine? Um, in Hessen, well, very famous is like the the Frankfurt green sauce, which has a lot of fresh herbs in it. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like a yogurty creamy uh, sauce, you usually eat it with eggs. Um, well, Wiesbaden is a fantastic wine region. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so th that is definitely something I can recommend. And then they have like little snacks that go with it or a flamkuchen, which is like a... Hmm, how do you German call pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it German pizza, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is... Um, nice. Yeah. Do you serve also food... Uh, while the festival is there? We do. Um, we serve lunch. Um, it's a bit of a challenge because Wiesbaden is very expensive and prices have gone up and we want to serve people proper food. But we, when we had uh, a festival during Corona, there were like very strict measures and people were basically eating bread the entire week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out of their noses again. <laughs> but we try to be a hospitable festival as much as we can. We also have some receptions. Um, so yeah. Nice. And we have uh, our vodka sponsor is Zubrovka. I saw that on some videos. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and my favorite gherkins actually are Polish. It's the ones with dill and a bit of garlic yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. absolutely no sugar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Looking forward to have some Zubrówka. <laughs> and watch uh, Eastern European films. Thank you so much, Helene, for uh, this conversation. And I see you in the Go East Festival in Wiesbaden. Great. Thanks for having me. This was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. Perhaps I will see you at the Go East Film Festival between the 24th of April and 2nd of May. I will be there. So please get in touch if you heard the podcast and want to meet me in person. Uh, perhaps we can do that in Wiesbaden.
And last but not least, I wanted to give you some tips of how to support this podcast if you liked what you heard. Uh, you can, of course, uh, rate it and follow it on various uh, streaming platforms. Uh, you can have a look and perhaps buy the Kitchen Conversations cookbook. That is a cookbook I uh, published last year with recipes uh, of artists who appeared on the podcast and all the money from the sales goes uh, to supporting uh, this platform, of course. And lastly, you can become a patron of this podcast and support Kitchen Conversations with a monthly amount of your choice. And in return, you will receive some uh, goodies from me and a lot of love and good energy. In the meantime, take good care and we hear each other soon.